Well, uh, today is the fourth installment in this series that we're calling Questions That Christians Don't Want to Answer. And for all of you that are watching online, those of you at the detention center, those of you there in Somerset and here in the room, uh, we'll catch you up in just a moment. But let me say a word uh, to those of you here at the Creek Church Somerset uh, this morning. Uh, Two straight weeks, you have broke your all-time attendance records. Bigger than Christmas, bigger than Easter. Hey, we are so happy for you over there. It's incredible. Incredible. Awesome. Um, If you happen to be a guest of ours, as I said, this is the uh, fourth installment in this series. And basically, I'm asking a question each week, and I want you to begin to think about it. And then hopefully, as you think about it, uh, it will cause you to take some action steps. But the question is, why do you believe what you believe? Because everybody here in the room, Somerset, online, wherever in the world you may be, uh, everybody believes something. And not only do they believe something, but typically, we, we believe a lot of somethings. And we talked about, you know, there's usually one of four reasons why we believe what we believe sociological it's because our parents told us to believe it a friend a professor culture at large uh, you know there's psychological reasons why we believe what we believe it's comforting we find it comfortable it gives us a sense of identity a sense of meaning and purpose uh, there's religious reasons because it's in a book you know the bible says so the preacher says so the church wrote a book and said this is what we believe this is what we do not believe and, and then you know you just signed your name to the dotted line and you just inherited all of those beliefs or Uh, the fourth and the best reason to believe something is the philosophical reason. And and that means that you've evaluated the evidence and you followed the facts and uh, you determined that there was a particular explanation that served as the best explanation for the data. And that's the reason you should believe what you believe, uh, not for the other reasons. And, And this is how we've started each week by saying this, that something is worth believing. Something is worth believing if it's rational, supported by evidence, and best explains the data. Now, whatever you believe, that's the best reason to believe whatever it is that you believe, that you follow the facts, you're open to the facts, and you follow the facts even when, now this happens on occasion, you follow the facts even when they take you to an uncomfortable, unsettling, and inconvenient <laughs> truth. And a lot of folks, let's just get honest, we are not willing to follow the facts to places that are unsettling, inconvenient, and uncomfortable. We will hold on to something we believe even when there's good reason we shouldn't believe it any longer. This is true of people who believe and people who don't believe in God, people who follow the teachings of the scripture and people who do not. And so in this series, I want us all to understand that spiritual conclusions, spiritual conclusions can be logical conclusions. They can be rational conclusions. Faith-based conclusions can also be rational conclusions. Those two things do not have to be separated. Those things can coexist. So just because you have a spiritual conclusion or you have a friend that's made some spiritual conclusions does not necessarily mean that they have not also made a rational, logical decision as well in that conclusion. So. When you think about why you believe what you believe, honestly, why do you believe what you believe? And if you believe it for this reason right here, then you are positioned to do what Simon Peter, one of the first followers of Jesus, told us that we are supposed to be able to do. And this is the springboard for this whole series. And this is what he said. He says, always be prepared to give an answer because if you've believed it for the right reason, you'll be able to do this. To everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, The assumption is you have a reason for believing what you believe, and you do have a reason. The question is, do you have a good reason? Do I have a good reason? Do we have a good reason? Regardless of whatever we believe and decided not to believe, do we have a good reason? It's personal. 
that it's not borrowed, it's owned for the hope that you have. And then he says, but do this with gentleness and respect because the point is not to win the argument. It's not to say, hey, I'm right and you're wrong. It's to engage in a conversation and hopefully make a difference. So Jesus' followers are called We are called to be able to have a legitimate, rational, intelligible conversation about what we believe to people who don't believe what we believe. And we are called to have that conversation with culture, even when it's not easy for culture to sign on the dotted line to say, hey, I believe what you believe. We are still called to be able to have a conversation and to do it with gentleness and to do it with respect and to be able to articulate for the right reasons why we believe what we believe. We just can't say because the Bible says so, terrible place to start. Granny said so. Uh, That's what they taught me at church. That's how I was raised. No, hopefully you follow the facts to the place where you believe best explains all the information, evidence that you have been able to expose yourself to. So today's question that we're going to have a conversation about, we're going to talk about is a big one. So before we look at the question, here's what I want you to do. Again, I want to say, lean up, lean in. If you have a pencil, I would write down just a few notes, write down some random words, write down some names, anything that you can do to stay engaged. As the old timers would say, a dull pencil beats a sharp mind any day, but we live in a world where people are like, pencils, who carries pencils? So pull out your dull thumbs and and pull out your Android or your iPhone or iPad and pull open the notes app. It's why God put it on there. And, and, and so that you could, you can, you know, just kind of tap along and and follow what we're going to talk about. Because if not, uh, I'm going to throw a bunch at you and I'm going to do so unapologetically because I assume you can come back and listen to this or watch this and and you can pull out and extrapolate what you need to pull out and extrapolate for your own benefit, your own context. All right. So here's the question. How are Christians supposed to reconcile their faith with science? How are Christians, people who decide to follow Jesus and and believe they have a good reason to follow Jesus, how are we supposed to reconcile our faith with science? Now, first of all, let me say, this question could be a series in and of itself. We could spend four weeks on this, six weeks on this. And I thought about the best way to introduce this, to talk about this. This is not gonna flow like you know, a typical sermon that we would do around here. I'm gonna give you some statements to get us on some common ground. I'm gonna give us all some common framework as we approach this question and hopefully try to answer it in a way that makes a little bit of sense, in a way that perhaps you can take it even further in your own study, your own research, and your own thinking. But I wanna give us some common statements, some framework to work from, so I can land the plane at the very end with with one big idea, and and then we're gonna move on next week to the next question. So I'm gonna give you some statements, make some statements about that statement, and then we're gonna move on until we get to where we're gonna try to get today. All right, if you're with me, say I am. Okay, so here's, here's the first statement to get us rolling. Christianity versus science is a false dichotomy. Christianity versus science is a false dichotomy. Unfortunately, there is a growing idea in culture, both inside and outside the church, that says that it's either science or faith. It's either science or the Bible, that, that you can't possibly embrace the Bible and you can't possibly embrace science at the same time, that you have to decide between the science book and the good book, because you can't, you can't just take both of those at the same time and accept both on their premises, that, that it's science against faith and faith against science. And this is a growing belief among people inside the church and outside the church. Uh, There's this growing belief that faith and science are in opposition 
with one another. They're, they're conflicting against one another. You know, they're in some, you know, cosmic contest against one another and that they're running in opposite directions and you can't follow faith and follow science at the same time. And, and it's just a false dichotomy. It, it's, it's a part of a cultural myth. It's part of a, a cultural line that exists out there along the fringe. And, and here's what all of us need to understand. Both over here in the Christian camp, and I'm going to play into this dichotomy for just a moment. Over here in the Christian camp and over here in the science camp, there are crazy aunts and uncles that nobody should listen to, right? Every family has crazy aunts and crazy uncles. Both of these camps have crazy aunts and crazy uncles who are well-credentialed and well-trained and well-educated. But they're on the far, far edges of this discussion. And most of the time out there on the fringe, they seem more informed by presupposition to their worldview and to their own ideas and to what they want to be true versus evidence and rational conclusions to what actually may be true. So there's the fringe part of this that we're just going to dismiss. We, they're on both sides, hyper-conservative, hyper-science, and, and they demonize each other, right? Over here to the far fledges of science, you know, there are people who talk about Christians as, you know, just, you know, brainless weirdos who are holding the world back from progress. But over here and, you know, far edges of Christian land, there are people who talk about, you know, the godless elitist, the Darwinian worshiping, you know, folks that are just taking the world to hell in a handbasket. And, and you've got both sides who demonize it. So we're just going to kind of, you know, just not deal with any of those people because they don't deserve to be hurt, in my opinion. And the sad thing about it is those are the people who get the airtime. Those are the people who are writing the books. And unfortunately, they're well-funded by somebody. And they're out there and they're writing the books and they're, they're getting the platform that they have. And, and really, they're not helping the cause of either side. So you've got this you know, false dichotomy of Christianity versus science. And, and you've got the demonization from the fringe elements towards each other, each other. But when you get down there to the heart and to the rational people that exist on both sides of this issue and even bleed over into both sides of this issue, you find something entirely, entirely different. Matter of fact, uh, Albert Einstein, I think we all agree that man, when it came to intellect, he had game. All right. This is what Albert Einstein said. He said, science without religion is lame and religion without science is blind. In other words, they're not at opposition with one another. They should operate in symmetry with one another. They should complement one another. They should feed off one another. And they should shine each other light to each other. That this is something that's supposed to work together, not work against one another. A professor of theoretical physicist, John Polkinghorne, he said this. He said, science and religion, science and religion are friends, not foes. In the common question for knowledge, now, I'm going to give you what a lot of different people say today. All of these people are extremely well-credentialed, well-educated, some of the top institutions, Princeton, Cambridge, Oxford, Queens College, uh, folks that, that have written so many books that we can't even read on things that we wouldn't even understand if we read them. Some of these are believers. Some of these are agnostic. Some of these are unbelieving. And, and I will you know, try to catch up to speed on who's saying what and why they're saying it. But I want you to hear what people in, in the heart of this discussion of science and faith are saying about this. People who know far more than what we know, who study far more than what we'll ever study, and who care about these things far more than we will ever care about them. And just because you don't personally care about them doesn't make them not important. And it doesn't mean that you shouldn't decide to think that some of these things are important. We're talking about a mathematical physicist who, you know, is a professor at Cambridge University who says, hey, let me tell you, science and, and, and faith, they're not foes, they're friends. So it's a cultural myth to say that science has made faith in God irrelevant and rational. 
And it's a cultural myth to say that if you embrace faith and the teachings of the Bible, that you can't embrace what science says to be true as actually true. Faith and science are not mutually exclusive. You can actually believe in both, and you can believe in both at the same time. You can believe in science and faith, believe in science and the Bible at the same time. You, you can, you can follow both at the same time. Matter of fact, a late poll a couple of years ago showed that nearly half of all scientists globally, half of all scientists globally are theists. Not necessarily Christian, as we understand Christians to be, but theists. They believe that there is a personal being somewhere out there, outside of time space in the material universe that's responsible in some way to what we see existing above us, around us, and within us, known as the natural order of things today. So you can believe both. It's a false dichotomy to say that Christianity is against science and science is against Christianity, all right? Second statement. Christianity and science, both at their heart, when, when they're operating as they should, Christianity and science both pursue and value truth. That's what the professor was saying. They're not foes, they're friends. They should work together. Science, science, you know, that we studied in school from, from the earliest of years. It is the study of the natural world, the natural order. And they do so, scientists do this through observation, you know, investigation, experimentation, and ultimately science is the search for causes. What caused that? Okay, that's a reality. This, this, this is an effect. What is the cause? And basically that's what science does through observation, experimentation, using hypothesis and theory to take the natural world that we can observe around us and to try to determine what is true and what is not and what caused that and what didn't cause that. On the flip side, Christianity is all about truth as well. Someone says it's all about faith. Well, it is about faith, but it's about informed faith. It's about faith that's based on evidence that leads to belief that ultimately may lead to faith. So both faith and science both value truth and both value evidence. Both value reason. Both value reason. And, and here's, here's a little secret I'm gonna tell you. Hopefully you'll never forget this. This may be worth your trip today. Scientists, scientists have a fallible, a fallible understanding of nature. They can have a fallible understanding of nature. On the other side, theologians, right? You know, people who tell us, hey, this is what to believe, what not to believe, this is what the Bible means, this is what the Bible doesn't mean. Theologians can have a fallible interpretation of what we believe is an infallible text. Now, this is really important. This is important if you're a parent, if you're a grandparent, you're ever gonna have a conversation like this with your kids. To understand that scientists can have a fallible interpretation of the natural world. Matter of fact, read history, science has done that. There have been times when science said, hey, this is the way it is, only to discover something that says, no, we were wrong, that's not the way it is, and they would have to retract and correct. You read through history, you're gonna find that theologians that say, this is right, this is true only to be fallible in their interpretation of the infallible text and only have to recant of what they previously said. So both sides can have fallible interpretations of what they are observing, one through the natural world order and the other through what we believe is infallible text. But at the end of the day, both want to discover what is true and what isn't true. And I've said this before, and I'm gonna say this over and over again. Christian, if you call yourself Christian, you should never ever be fearful of the truth. 
No matter who discovers it, whether it's science, whether it's cosmology, whether it's a physicist, whether it's biochemist, you should never be fearful of the truth because here's what Christians believe. Christians believe that God is the essence of truth. We believe that his son, Jesus Christ, was the embodiment of truth. And we know that Jesus taught us that truth is eternal and more than that, truth is enlightenment, it is light. And we believe that anytime you take a step in the direction of truth, you're actually taking a step in the direction of God. And why we as Christians Christians or believing folks in God should ever be intimidated when science comes along and says, this is true. That shouldn't bother us. What it should cause us to do is to reevaluate what we interpreted to be a true statement or not a true statement or an interpretation of a true statement that perhaps we didn't have exactly the correct handles on. Because in those instances, you're not changing what the scriptures say. You're changing a fallible interpretation of what an infallible text says. And that is completely okay. And that should be encouraged for all Christians because we are not intimidated by the truth. So Christians should never demonize science. We should never ever seem as though we are so insecure about our faith that anytime science says, hey, we've discovered something that's true. And for some reason it cuts against the grain of what we heard in a sermon about creation, heard in a sermon about Genesis, or we heard in the sermon about, you know, how the solar system worked or about a sun standing still and how it, it should never bother us because we are people who follow facts and we follow facts even when the truth doesn't really gel with what we were told the interpretation of the truth was. And even when we follow it to an inconvenient, unsettling, uncomfortable place, when we land on what is truly true, we have taken a step in the direction of God. We may have taken a step away from an fallible interpretation of an infallible text, but we did not take a step away from God. We actually took a step towards God. Francis Collins, Francis Collins, who leads the National Institute of Health, who also led the project called the Human Genome Project. We're talking about well-credentialed and incredible leader and who has led the movement to teach us more about the human genetic code than, than anybody in history. To give you a little bit of information about Francis Collins, he is an evangelical Christian. He, he is what we would call in our culture a conservative evangelical Christian, but he embraces evolution, not only just microevolution, but he embraces the Darwinian thought of macroevolution as well. And, and so he is a conservative evangelical Christian that embraces a theistic evolutionary idea of the origins of life. More on that in just a moment, but I wanted you to know what he believed so that you understand where he's coming from with what he says. And he wrote an incredible book called The Language of God, all about DNA. And he called DNA the digital elegance, the language of God. And it's, it's an incredible read, you should read it. But here, here's what he says on this idea. He says, I do not believe that the God who created all the universe and who communes with his people through prayer and spiritual insight would expect us to deny the obvious truths of the natural world that science has revealed to us in order to prove our love for him. In other words, he says, Christians should never put our head in the sand when it comes to truth because when we hold on to what must have been a fallible interpretation of something, if there's something absolutely true and it flies in the face of interpretation that we once heard or a sermon that we once heard or a point of view that we once heard or embraced because it's the type of church we were raised in or the type of Christians we were surrounded with, he says, that doesn't prove you love God. It just proves that you're opposed to the truth. And as a Christian, you're called to love God with all your heart, soul, 
mind and strength. And one of the ways that we love God is through our mind, our intellect, our rational thinking, inductive, deductive reasoning, logical conclusions, all of that. And one of the ways that we express that love is in pursuit of truth. And it's absolutely true. We love God when we pursue truth, all right? So that's two down. Here's another statement. If you're with me, say, I am. All right, Christianity and science both agree that truth is found in the natural world around us and within us. That's what we both agree. Science obviously does because they study the natural world, but so do Christians. Let me tell you what Christians believe. Christians believe that God has revealed himself to the world. And here's how Christians believe that God did that. God did it through creation. God did it through the scriptures. And God did it ultimately and completely and most perfectly in his son, Jesus Christ. That God wanted the world to know who he was and what he was like. So he created the world and the world in its creation points us to God. And not only that, but he gave us the scriptures and in the scriptures we learn about God, but he sent Jesus to us so that we could learn what our heavenly father is truly like. That's what Christians learn. That's what Christians believe. So if we believe that the created world is a revelation of God, why would we ever oppose science? Why would we ever be intimidated by science whose express purpose is to discover what the natural world has to teach us? Matter of fact, the scriptures over and over again tells us that there is a revelation of God. There is knowledge about God in creation. Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. Psalm 8, the psalmist said, when I consider the heavens, the work of thy finger, I stop, I pause, I ask the question, who am I that you would be mindful of me? But even in the New Testament, even in the New Testament, this idea exists. This idea goes back 2,000 years to the first century of Christians, to the first group of Christians and the apostle Paul. Here's what he said on this idea of the natural world creation around us, above us, within us, and it teaching us about God. This is, this is what Paul wrote to the Romans. He says, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, things that we couldn't see about God, we could have otherwise not known about God. His eternal power and even his divine nature have been clearly seen. Where, Paul, where, where has this been clearly seen? Being understood from what has been taught to me, made. In other words, the natural world gives us a window to the invisible qualities of God, both his eternal power and his divine nature. So ultimately, every time science discovers something about the natural world, they are teaching us something about God. And every time science discovers something, as someone said, we should just pause and say, wow, that's how God did it. Or how impressive is it that God did it that way? That, that we shouldn't ever be so locked into a preconceived idea when truth is discovered elsewhere that always in the end points us to God anyway. Francis Collins, to quote him again, he said that science is simply mankind trying to understand the greatness of God's design. That, that, that's what science is. And for Christians, that's how we understand it. We're not intimidated by that. We don't see science as the enemy or as the foe. That This is actually something that points us in the direction of God. So when you think about science and you think about faith, and when I'm talking about faith in this particular talk, I'm, I'm talking about Christian faith. I'm talking about the scriptures. There are actually points of agreement, big points of agreement, points of agreement that serve as the framework for everything that we know about the universe above us, around us, and even within us. And so here's where science and, and Christian faith and, and the scriptures, this is where we agree. Let me show you these seven things right here. And I'll, I'll just read these to you and then say a little bit about each one. We both agree that the universe had a beginning. We both agree that there was a progressive creation. We both agree that life comes from life, that no new matter is being created, 
that the universe is running down. It's not, you know, it's not gaining, it's, it's winding down. The sequence of life, uh, the sequence of life's appearance. Uh, we, we believe in how life showed up on the planet and we agree with how that happened. And we also agree on the elemental sharing of humans and dirt. So let me, let me just quickly. We believe the universe had a beginning. Science didn't always believe that. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. Edwin Hubble, Einstein, theory of relativity. Now all respected scientists believe, even atheistic scientists believe that the universe had a beginning. And we said that the rational conclusion is that if something that wasn't came to be something, it's not very logical or reasonable to think that something came from nothing. Perhaps it's more reasonable to say that nothing came from someone. And so that God preexisted the effect and God is the first caused uncaused who is timeless, spaceless, and outside the material universe. And both science and Christians agree that the universe had a beginning. We believe in progressive creation. Uh, we find that in the book of Genesis, that the earth was without form and then the earth had form. And, and that's also what science believes. Uh, we believe that the universe, according to Genesis, that the Christian language, the Old Testament Jewish language was that God said in the beginning, let there be light. The scientific language is the big bang, which says that in a moment of energy and light, the universe came into existence. And so we, we both agree with light and we both agree with this experience explosion of energy from, from the very beginning. We both agree on that. We both agree that no new matter is being created and the universe is running down. That's the first and second law of thermodynamics. Uh, we believe that life comes from life. You know, Louis Pasteur, he, he proved that there's no such thing as spontaneous generation, that inanimate matter cannot give, you know, birth to life and that, you know, that, that's a foregone conclusion. And, and then also the sequence of life's appearance. This is, this is really interesting. If you read the Genesis account of creation, it talks about how that life was first in the sea. And then it was not only in the sea first, from the sea, then life showed up on land. If you take what science teaches today and is accepted as science, that science teaches that that's exactly how life began. It began in the water. And then as it teemed in the Cambrian waters, you know, four or 500 million years ago or whatnot, there was the biological big bang. And in the Cambrian era, there was all of a sudden now, all of a sudden these new species uh, in fully developed form uh, that we have a record for in the fossil record. And, and it's exactly along the progressive timeline of what Genesis says. And then the elemental sharing of human and dirt. The, the Genesis language is that God made man from the dust of the earth. And so help me. Science has come along and said, hey, the constituency of your elements that are inside of you are also found where? Wait for it. In the dirt. So, you know, hey, we, we agree on some things that are really important, which basically serve as the framework for everything that we know about the universe. Now, we would disagree about some of the language and we would tweak this and we would say, well, what about that and what about this? But on, on the, you know, taking it from the 30,000, you know, feet up in the air uh, lens, we, we agree on these really, really important things. Now, I wanna take a breath, all right? Is that okay? All right, so hopefully, hopefully you're with me. Let me give you another statement. Something, whatever, something can't be true in nature and the opposite be true in scripture, all right? Something can't be true in nature and be true in the scripture, you know, the opposite be true in the scripture at the very same time. Again, both can be fallible, but if something is found to be true in nature, but it was believed to be opposite in the scripture, then the interpretation of the infallible text 
must be adjusted. And let me give you an example from history. Once upon a time, I know it's hard for us to believe, but once upon a time, people thought the earth was flat. I am told there are still groups of people that believe that the earth is flat, imagine that. But once upon a time, people really thought the earth was flat. And you know why a lot of people who followed Jesus and believed the Bible believed that the earth was flat? Because there were Bible verses for that. And there's Bible verses for lots of things, but there, there are multiple Bible verses about the four corners of the earth. Well. Something that's round doesn't have corners. Something flat has corners. And so, you know, the Bible would talk about the four corners of the earth. And so there were people who believed that the earth was flat until science discovered the earth is round. And that is absolutely true. It's indisputably true the earth is round. So what had to happen? There had to be an adjustment of the fallible interpretation of the infallible text. And all of a sudden we realized that was not literal language, that was figurative language, that was poetic language. And so it had to be readjusted. And this, this has happened on both sides of the aisle throughout history and it's nothing we should be intimidated about or made uncomfortable by. So I say all of that to land the plane here. When you take everything from that common sense of framework about science, there's false dichotomy and we're friends and we're not foes and we're all after truth and we believe there's truth in the natural world around us. And when you take all of that and you put it together and then you begin to think about what I think is the greatest thing that science has brought us face to face with. And the greatest thing that I think that science has brought us face to face with, no matter what area of science it is, is what I wanna call the discovery of design, the discovery of design. Once upon a time in primitive man, in our history, we would look up and we would see that things were just full of grandeur and enormous and it would point us to God. But as we became more informed and as we became more intelligent about the world around us, we actually began to discover what appeared to be a design in the world around us, above us and within us. And so if you take science today, science takes us back to the moment before what science calls the Big Bang. Science takes us back to the moment before the Big Bang when there was nothing. Everybody say nothing. Nothing. And it's hard for us to even fathom nothing, but there was nothing. There was no space, no time, no material. There was nothing. And then all of a sudden, bang, there was something. And this explosion of light and energy happened at such the, the right specific intensity that it wasn't too fast, it wasn't too slow, otherwise the universe would have collapsed back upon itself. But it happened at just the right speed, at just the right intensity. And all of a sudden, from nothing came something. This is science, and this is, this is Genesis, that out of nothing came something. Now, this is where it just, I mean, it just blows my mind and just really kind of gets me fired up. There was nothing, and then all of a sudden there was matter. There was matter that existed within a time-space continuum. And not only did matter exist in a new time-space continuum that didn't exist just a moment before, but now all of a sudden, everything in the time-space continuum is governed by natural laws. Natural laws that did not exist a nanosecond before that explosion of light and heat. 
All of a sudden, there are natural laws. Where did those natural laws came from? come from? Because before that, there was nothing. And then on top of these natural laws, there are what scientists call the 122 anthropic constants. There's 122 things that if they were adjusted just ever so slightly one way or the other, life would not be possible for us. We would not be here. And so as scientists begin to understand more about this, as Hubble looked through that telescope, as they discovered background cosmic radiation, as they saw the universe racing away from itself based on Einstein's prediction of his theory of relativity, when all of that pointed back, it pointed back to something that was extremely complex, but extremely particular. And all of a sudden scientists, they didn't have any other language to say, but to say this all seems so particular, it's almost the appearance of a design. Now, this is where logic and rational thought come into play. If there is a design, the logical conclusion is, you've heard this before, there must be a what, a designer. You go to the Grand Canyon, you've seen pictures of it if you haven't been there. You go to Mount Rushmore, you've been there, you've seen pictures of it. I've seen both, I've seen the Grand Canyon up close and personal, I've never been to Mount Rushmore, but I've seen fair share of pictures. You go to the Grand Canyon and you say, majestic. It's grand, I mean, it's just grand, it's incredible, it's awesome. But there's no rhyme and reason to it. It's the erosion, water, time, all that, you know, and here it is, the river cutting through the canyon and it's just, it's incredible. And it looks random and it looks like, you know, hey, this took a long time to do. Then you go to Mount Rushmore and you look and there is obviously a design. There's obviously logic. There's obviously intelligibility about what you're seeing. The logical conclusion for any of us, for any person would be that Mount Rushmore is the result of a design. And if there was a design, there must be a designer. Scientists, believing or not, they've looked up at the sky cosmologically and they've said, hey, whether it's true or not, it sure does have the appearance of a design. Hundreds of years ago, Isaac Newton, he said this, this lost beautiful system of the sun, planets and comets could only proceed from the counsel and dominion of an intelligent and powerful being. Let me give you another one. I'm gonna, I'm gonna throw a lot at you because I think you need to know what these incredibly intelligent people. Arno Penzias, who discovered cosmic background radiation, we talked about a couple weeks ago. He said astronomy leads us to a unique event, a universe which was created out of nothing and delicately, delicately balanced to provide exactly the conditions required to support life. He goes on to say that in the absence of an absurdly improbable accident, and I could tell you about you know, a theoretical physicist who put the numbers to it based on the number of planets, the number of atoms that are in the universe, so on and so forth, that it's, it is basically a numerical, mathematic, statistical zero chance that everything that is could come to be. He calls an absurdly improbable accident. The observations of modern science seem to suggest, seem to suggest an underlying one might say supernatural plan or something outside of nature because how can nature give birth to nature? There has to be something outside of nature that creates nature. John Lennox, again, he's a theoretical physicist at uh, Cambridge. And, and here's what he said. He said, the mathematical intelligibility of nature, because basically, yeah, yeah, I don't understand this, but you know, everything's governed by the law of physics and everything, you know, even down to the quantum level is mathematic, mathematical. And you know, some of us, we can't even balance our checkbook. And, 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 but the universe down there on a quantum level, that it's all mathematically governed. It can all be put to pen. And, and this is what he says. He says, the mathematical intelligibility of nature is evidence 
sense for a rational spirit behind the universe. How can you have a mathematical universe without somebody implementing the mathematics of it all? How, how, did, how, how is there a rational thought to say that just mathematics just came together? But two plus two just equal four. Where, where did these principles, these truths, these natural laws, these constants come from? Sir Fred Hoyle, he, he's an astronomer. He's responsible for some of the, the biggest breakthrough theories in, in, in astronomy. He says a common sense interpretation of the facts suggests that a super intelligent, super intelligent person has monkeyed with the physics. A super intellect has monkeyed with the physics as well as with the chemistry and biology and that there are no blind forces with speaking that we're speaking about in nature. It, it, it may be natural selection, but it's not unguided, blind natural selection. Perhaps it's guided, intelligent, natural selection, maybe, perhaps. He says it's just not chance. Freeman Dyson, another theoretical physicist, he says, the more I examine the universe, the details of its architecture, the more evidence I find that the universe in some sense must have known that we were coming. These are people who study more, know more, care more than we'll ever know, study or care about this stuff. Alan Sandage, he says, the Big Bang was a supernatural event that cannot be explained within the realm of physics as we know it because there was nothing before there was something and we have no law for that. Paul Davies, he says this, I cannot believe our existence in this universe is a mere quirk of fate. We are truly meant to be here. Stephen Hawking, perhaps the most famous atheist of our time. The odds against a universe like ours emerging of something like the Big Bang are enormous. I think there are clearly religious implications. I do too. <laughs> I think you're right. Science looked up and science looked around and said, it at least has the appearance of a design. And then science looked within to the cellular level of who we are and what we are. And science looked down there on the cellular level of who you are and who I am and says, we have found precision and complexity that is unrivaled with anything in the universe. Richard Dawkins, another famous atheist of our time, he said this, biology is the study of complicated things that give, and this is his word, the appearance. He doesn't think it really is, but he thinks it's the appearance of having been designed with a purpose. And now science, you know, we call it simpler life, you know, and perhaps, you know, some have stated the, the evolution from one simpler life form to another, but we now know there's no such thing as really a simple life form. It's all complex. And even a one-celled organism, a one-celled organism, if you took the DNA that of what, you know, Stephen or, you know, Francis Collins calls DNA, the language of God. And if you're not ever, you should read his book. It's incredible. He calls DNA, the language of God. And within that one-celled organism, the most simple that we know, if you took that DNA, it has enough coded intelligent information, right? It's like a coded statement. It has its own language. You, know, you remember that, you know, A and a T and G and all that stuff. So that it's a coded message that it has enough information in that one-celled organism to fill 1,000 Encyclopedia Britannicas. Who among us would read through 1,000 Encyclopedia Britannicas and ever imagine for a moment that information just came together in a coherent, intelligible form? If your kid writes a two-word two sentence, you know that it required some level of intelligence. And if we know that to be true with our English language, then how about on the cellular level of genetic information and coded messaging? Do we not also take the same rational thought and logic to that as well? Here, here's what a Michael 
Deaton said, he, Dennison said, he said, the complexity of the simplest known type of cell is so great that it is impossible to accept that such an object could have been thrown together suddenly by some kind of freakishly, vastly improbable event. And, and this is the part that's so impressive. Such an occurrence would be indistinguishable from a miracle. Inside of you and me right now, think about this. Our DNA is three billion characters long. We, we can't even fathom, three billion characters long. And it aligns in such a way, it makes you who you are today. It makes you who you are today. Three billion characters. If you took the trillion cells that's in your body right now and you took all the genetic coded information and you stretched it out, it would extend for 700 million miles. It's beyond us. But we look down there inside and we say, this is so complex. How could this just have happened? Anthony Flew, perhaps the most famous conversion of the last century, atheist turned theist. He said, what I think the DNA material has done is that it has shown by the almost unbelievable complexity of the arrangements which are needed to produce life, that intelligence must have been involved in getting these extraordinarily diverse elements to work together. Do you know that once upon a time, your mother ovulated? <laughs> Without her even thinking about it, she didn't get up that day and say, I need to ovulate. Mm, no, you can't just, without her even thinking. And do you know that her body perfumed that egg? Perfumed it without her even thinking about it. And then all of a sudden your dad came along and he sent in 300 million troops to find that egg. And there was a race, those 300 marching soldiers going after that egg and guess what? You won, you're here, congratulations. That winning soldier, smaller than a grain of salt, held half your genetic information, went in search, swimming at the equivalent of what is 34,000 miles an hour, found that egg the size of a period who had the other half of your genetic information. So you've got the little thing smaller than a grain of salt with half your information, an egg smaller than a period with the other half of your information. And there was fertilization. And without anybody consciously thinking about anything, cells went to work in a biological choreography. Factories with proteins and RNA and DNA. And cells began to divide and come together and form tissues and organs and bones without anyone directing it because of the information in each cell. Each cell knew exactly what to do and how to do it with the capacity to correct it when it went wrong. No wonder the psalmist said, for you God created my inmost being. You knit me together. God, it was like you knitted me on the cellular level on a level that was smaller than a grain of salt and smaller than the size of a period at the end of a sentence. God, you knitted me together in this language of God, this genetic information, God, that you seemingly designed into every living thing, including me. I praise you 
because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made, written 2,000 years before Jesus would ever show up on the planet. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame, listen to this language. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes, your eyes saw my unformed body. God, when I was just genetic code on one end of the sperm with genetic code on the other end of an egg, God, before I was formed, before it all came together, God, you saw me. You understood on the language of the cellular level who I am and who I was to be. You had programmed it that way. God, you saw me in my unformed. All the days of my life were ordained for me, written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. And when I awake, I'll be with you. Science has looked above us and around us, and now they're looking within us. And there seems to be a design to it all. And if there is a design, perhaps the reasonable conclusion is there must be a designer. Here's what Steve, this is what Francis Collins, this is how he ends his book. He says, the God of the Bible is also the God of the genome. He can be worshiped in the cathedral we're in the laboratory. His creation is majestic, awesome, intricate, and beautiful. So what about Darwin? Don't worry about Darwin. Darwin, he, he, he theorized about how simpler life gave way to more complex life. And he took it back to a common ancestor and he took it to what was called the trunk. But he never hypothesized about where the trunk came from. The question is not about the evolution of life. That's, that's really never the question. The question is always, about the origin of life, first life. How did nothing come from something? And when something showed up, it appeared to have been designed from the universe down to you. Perhaps it's unreasonable to think that you're a cosmic accident. Perhaps the reasonable thing that in your complicated state of you with all the complexity of all that intelligible code that you walk around with in your trillion cells that die off and replace themselves every single second, perhaps the reasonable conclusion is there was a designer. And Christians believe that the designer stepped into the design to reveal himself in the person of Jesus, to prove that our creator wanted to be in relationship with us. Truth is always a friend to God because it points us right at Him. Father, help us to absorb what we need to absorb, hear what we need to hear. With every head bowed, every eye closed, maybe you're here and once upon a time you thought that it was either science or faith. And maybe today you realize that's not so. Maybe today you can take a step of faith that you never knew you could take and believe what you believe about the world around you. Maybe in this moment you sense what you already 
suspect it to be true, that you're not an accident, that you're here with intention and purpose. And maybe you would just pray a simple prayer that says something like this, Heavenly Father, I believe in this moment, I have to believe there's something inside of me and with the world around me in a voice of unison it compels me to believe and I believe God that you have revealed yourself to us in Jesus that the greatest sign of all was his death and his burial his resurrection but today right now the best way I know how I want to take a step in your direction I want to confess that I believe and I do so because it's reasonable it's rational it's logical. And I pray in Jesus' name.